Well, once again, and I know I say this a lot, but every time I say it, I mean it as much as I did before and perhaps even more. Thank you for being here. Thank you for recognizing and acting upon the centrality and the significance, the power, the necessity of knowing and understanding and living out the Word of God. Amen? Amen. There's nothing more important. I saw a fellow in the coffee company this morning. He recognized me. I don't recognize anyone when I get up in the morning. It takes me two or three minutes to recognize who's that person on the other side of that mirror. You know, it's like whatever. But he recognized me, and he had gone to Alpha. And he said, in spite of Frank Laurie, you know, he still liked the church. But, but at any rate, whatever. And so we chit-chatted just a second. You know, how you doing? Where yet? What's happening? And he asked about the book I was reading, and I just told him a little bit about it. And I said, uh, all the books that we read, the only material that is eternal is that which is a result of deals with a revelation of, etc., the Word of God and the Word of God itself. Amen? <clears throat> I told him, I said, everything else dies with you when you die. You see, because he had a book that wasn't particularly a biblical book. But I wanted just to alert him that what you're reading here is going to be dead when you're dead. But what we do here remains with us forever. Amen? Yes, this is the only eternal work. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, let's get the, the fullness of the picture. In the first garden, a man was created and set into the garden and was given the word of life. Correct? God spoke to him commands. You may remember something of Genesis 1 and 2. And these commands had to do with Adam's felicity. You know what I mean by felicity? What do I mean by felicity? What does that mean? His what? Happiness, his faithfulness to God, his walk with God. It had to do with his felicity, his fellowship. And everything was based upon one issue only, one issue only. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that's the only issue that everything of creation hung on. That issue is described in Romans 1, 5 as the obedience of faith. Of all the trees, except for that tree, do not eat of it, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And, of course, this man's disobedience brought ruin to the entire race and corruption to the entire cosmos. Years later, another man appears, and he is baptized in the wilderness. And the voice of God the Father for the first time since the creation is heard by a human being. You remember... In Matthew 3, 17, you're my son, my beloved, 
my Jedediah, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that revelation, what happens? In Matthew 4, verse 1, what happens? The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. For what purpose? To be tested. To be tested. To determine whether or not this man will do what Paul says in Romans 5.1. The obedience of faith. Our salvation is about the revelation of the obedience of faith of the Son of God as revealed in and to and through us as we reveal his obedience through our obedience. The obedience of faith. That's the kernel. That's the absolute kernel of what God is after. And so this man enters into the wilderness to face the one who tempted Adam to be a God in himself. You shall be like God. I don't know if I'm going to get through the material today. And in doing so, Jesus' faith was exercised as faith for living obediently in the will of God. That's what that faith at that moment was about. Faith for living. And now we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's actually the Olive Press Garden, to be more literal. And this same man who has now exercised the obedience of faith perfectly for living a life that images the character and the person of God comes into the garden to be tested once more and supremely to see whether or not this man will have faith, not for living, but for dying. For dying. For facing the absolute worst sentence that humanity has upon itself because of sin, which is what? The wrath of God. And so he enters the garden, remember, armed with the full armor of God, which we have been speaking about over the last week or two, I suppose. And this morning we pick up these, if you would, pieces of armor, but Let's make sure, and I don't want to make this an extensive teaching on Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. But I do want to say enough where we have some kind of a concept here. So let's see this. Paul lists six pieces of armor and then an activity at the end of the six. And we should not, as we should not in any aspect of the Word of God, see these as separate and distinct disassociated from one another pieces of armor. They form a unit. Amen? And so really what the pieces of armor are are the revelation and activity 
of the very character of our God in a man and as a man. Because you remember, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Remember who he is. He alone is a fulfillment of Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. And therefore, in him, we become image bearers of the one who is the image of God in himself and by himself. And so this morning, we look at the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, obviously, the helmet is worn by the soldier to protect his head, to protect his mind. You remember, we've already talked about the mind being guarded by or wrapped in or girded by what? Truth. We've already talked about the trunk of the soldier or the chest of the soldier being protected by the breastplate of righteousness. We've already talked about the walk of the soldier being stabilized through the shoes of the preparation of the gospel. And this morning, we talk, oh, wait, there's one more. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the shield of faith, that shield that is put up, and the shield is God himself, that every time we are attacked by the enemy, I don't have to say, oh, God, do this and that. I call upon God to be my shield itself and exercise faith in this God according to how he has told me to respond to the evil darts of the enemy. And so this morning we take up the fifth piece of armor, which is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, I have this perhaps in your notes. It has to do with hope, with hope. Jesus enters the garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> With hope, with assurance. Now remember, this is not a piece of armor that this man has put on before going into the garden. This is a piece of armor like all the rest that this man wears, that this armor is intrinsic to the very nature and character of this man. It's intrinsic to him. It's who he is as the image of God. And so he enters the garden wearing the helmet of hope. And so where is his hope set? And as we talk about this, let us make sure that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to apply this to me. Because everything Jesus does and everything about him is not for himself intrinsically, but for us. Correct? For us. He doesn't go to the cross for himself intrinsically. He goes to the cross for us so that we can be the glory of God in his Son. So that we can manifest the character and the nature of God in Christ, which could never be done in Adam. So he goes into the garden, and where is his mind set on the truth? And his hope is set where? On God himself, on God's faithfulness, on God's power, on who God is in himself, his character. His hope is set on God, not on the circumstances. If any man could not have set his hope on the circumstances, it's certainly Jesus. I mean, these were the worst circumstances of all. 
And so everything of nature, everything of the natural, everything of the natural was against hope. Do you remember that? Was against hope. And when I say that, hope against hope, what verse am I remembering? Romans what? Somebody said over here, Romans 4 what? Abraham, in hope against hope, believed God. You remember that? In Abraham. So, Jesus enters with his hope set on God. His hope looking at all the circumstances and saying to all the circumstances, every circumstance is a lie. If it is contradictory to the will of God. And I in no way will give an ounce of a thought or consideration to anything about my life and about my goal and about the means of God accomplishing his goal in me apart from putting my hope in God himself. He enters this way. His head is wrapped with the helmet of salvation. So this means that Jesus entered the garden with his set mind set on God as the God of all hope, Romans 15, 13, which perhaps some of you were thinking about, the God of all hope. Listen to what Psalm 71, 5 through 6 says. And remember, when I read this, Jesus knows the Psalms. In fact, every Psalm in some way and to some degree, may I repeat that word that I just said? How many Psalms? How many are there? How many? 150. Every Psalm in some way and to some extent and many much more clearly than others, every one is about Jesus. Everyone. Jesus is contained in every Psalm. For context of that, just look at Luke 22, I'm sorry, 24 what? 44, I think it is. Where Jesus says, from the prophets of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what? It's all about me. And so Psalm 71, 5 through 6, for you, O Yahweh, are my hope, my trust. O Yahweh, from my youth. You hear him? Do you hear Jesus entering the garden with this on his mind? Do you hear him? From my youth. Upon you, I have learned from my birth. I have leaned from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually on you. Oh, yes, a man wrote that, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is the real speaker in this psalm? It's Jesus himself. And he enters the garden with this. Now, that's to say this. Can we enter whatever battleground it is that we are walking upon? And I believe all of us, to some extent, are in a battle. Anybody in here that your life has absolutely no battles at all? Anyone? Because if it is, we're going to resuscitate you real fast. And so this psalm should be something that we have in our hearts and our minds as we enter whatever the battle or the situation is. Where is my hope for success? In my paycheck, 
in that person coming back and saying sorry, in my being able to get this job. No, where is our hope? It's in Yahweh himself. It's in the God of our salvation. That's where our hope is. So Jesus enters the garden with his hope and his assurance, centered firmly and fixed upon his own victory. He enters it knowing that he will have the victory, knowing that this garden battle will be victorious. And he enters it with that in mind that God will accomplish his work of redemption in us through Jesus' own atoning death. He enters that way. Not just, oh, I hope this works out and everything, but the specificity of what the purpose and will of God is for him at this particular point in his life. You know, one of Satan's tactics is to use all of our valleys. You remember the valley? Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk. May I repeat that? Yea, though I walk. No. What word? Say it again. May I say it for you? Through. Through. I'm going through. How do I know I'm going through, Billy? Because Jesus has been there and gone through. And I have gone through every valley where? In him. I'm already through them, except now I am experiencing going through them. But in him, I have already gone through, Al, Al, every valley. Amen? Can you say amen? We've gone through every valley. We're not going through valleys and say, oh, my God, I hope God can come through, and I hope he can do this. No! We enter every valley already as victors in him who has gone through this valley of the shadow of death. Is that right or wrong? My hope is, has nothing to do with me and my wife and my family and my background and my job and this world and the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump and Putin and all of those. My hope is in one man alone who has won the day. Amen? He has won the day. We live in him. We are his. But Satan's attack in these valleys is to tempt us with a sense of what? Where's God? What's going to happen? Am I going to make it through? Can God come through? Can God do anything? Is this the one thing that is impossible for... Anybody have these thoughts? Where are those thoughts from? Come on. How many of us have had these thoughts? Come on. How many of us? Where are they from? Satan. The Holy Spirit does not speak like that. So the next time your mind begins to hear and entertain these kinds of thoughts, remember, you are conversing with Satan in the same way that Eve conversed with Satan and she lost the conversation. Because the moment our conversation begins to be diverted from the communing conversation with the Holy Spirit, we lose immediately, no matter what happens, because we have looked to someone else other than the Word of God for our hope. Amen? It's not about the outcome. It's about the going through. Those thoughts are not 
indigenous to me. They are given to me. They're called in Ephesians chapter 6, flaming arrows or darts. Have you ever been okay in life and walking down the life and being okay and minding your own business, which I'm always doing, and just thinking lovely and wonderful things? Seriously. And all of a sudden, something comes into your mind, an invasion of a thought or feelings, and you say, what in the world is that? Anybody have ever experienced that? All of a sudden, what is it? It's called flaming darts of the enemy. And because I hear them, Feel them. They are not sin until I begin to set my hope on them or in relation to them. Correct? It's not sin to be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. But he didn't set his hope on anything but his trust in God. So what do we do when we think, have these thoughts? Two things. The first I've already mentioned. Sometimes I get ahead of my notes. The first thing to do, I'm getting these strange thoughts. I'm getting temptations. Anybody? You've ever been tempted to think, to do, to feel a certain way? Anybody? Well, what do you do with it? What, don't, please don't do this. I don't want to be tempted. Please don't tell me. Don't. Stop it. The devil loves that. Keep complaining. Keep asking. Keep whining. Keep doing it. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I love it. The first thing is to recognize what? The Holy Spirit is not in those thoughts. It's not his thoughts. It's another spirit called the unholy spirit. That's the first thing. What's the second thing? Do your notes have this? Are these in your notes? The second thing is to make a faith-filled Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith, decision. Oh, a decision. I have to decide. Won't God just, oh, come on, God, help. No, God has put the Holy Spirit in us and has given us the ability and the motive and the power to decide for or against him. Holy Spirit isn't going to do it for you, Chris. But as we decide to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, then his power is infused in our cooperation so that his will and our will are united in a single will, the obedience of faith. And so what's the second thing I do? Once I recognize it's not from the Holy Spirit, what is the second thing? I decide. I have to decide. I have to decide. I have to what? I have to make a decision. To do what? To obey God. To reject the thoughts as coming not from me, my new nature in Christ. The new nature in me in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, cannot think those thoughts. The new nature in me cannot think those thoughts. Come on. I can think them in my mind, corruption of my mind that's not yet totally transformed, Romans 12, 2. And so now I decide, do I cooperate with the nature of the Lord Jesus in me, which is called my new nature, or do I not? I have to make a decision.
I decide against those thoughts. And I decide for the thoughts of God. Psalm 42.11, very instructive. Why are you cast down, O my soul? What does that mean? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Anyone ever been cast down? I have. Anybody been cast down? Cast down. What's going on? What's happening? You see, life in this world is a constant casting down upon us. Right? Should we be surprised by this? The Bible says the whole creation is corrupted. Why are you so cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? My soul, my feelings, my thoughts, my attitudes, my hope, everything. Why? Why the turmoil? Think about yourself. Why? So what should you do? It's a command. It doesn't say try. You notice the Bible never says try in relation to God. Please put that word out of your mind when you're speaking about the things of God. God has never tried anything, and he's never asking his people to try a thing. He doesn't say, Valinda, try to do better. So we should never say that to us and to our children, to one another. Put it out of your mind. There's no such thing as try. Try to be okay. Try to cooperate. Kit, try to be nice. Yeah, I thought I'd get a rise from the other folks. Try, 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 AJ, not to eat so much. No. Frank, what is it? It's a command. What does it say? Hope. Or you may have in your training, put your hope. Hope in God. It's a command. What are you supposed to do, Henry? Hope. Where? My God, I hope something comes through today. I hope I get it in the mail. I hope I get No. Where's your hope? Where is it? Rochelle? Hope in God. Why are you in turmoil? Why are you in turmoil, Herman? You ain't supposed to be in turmoil. You're a man of God. Your turmoil means to me that you're not putting your hope in God. That's your problem. The problem isn't the circumstances. The problem isn't somebody else. The problem is we have not put our hope. We have taken off, if you would use an analogy like that, taken off the helmet of salvation. We've taken our hope off in order to try to hope for a good outcome. And we're getting hit in the head all over the place. And we're winding up with all these bruises and bumps on our heads. We're the people of God. We have in us the God of all creation. The one who calls himself, I am the Almighty. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the creator and sustainer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. 
I am your solid, persistent, faithful, comprehensive, all-powerful, forever and ever, hope. Amen? And so you understand why the psalmist says, hey, Brenda, why are you in turmoil? You in turmoil? You want to know what to do? So you go to counsel of Jesus, and you sit there and start pouring your heart out. I said, okay, I've heard enough. Put your hope in God. Okay, next. (laughs) Don't you have anything more to say? I can't tell you how many times in counseling, listen to the people. Fine. And then some of you have been in my office, and sometimes I'll say, that's enough. I don't need to hear anymore. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has given me something. Sometimes I don't do that, but sometimes I do that. And so here's what needs to happen. And I've actually had people to leave the counseling office. <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> because you see, the only counsel for our lives is to point back to God and not to anything of the natural. Amen. Can you say amen? amen. Yes. See, you thought I was going to give you three easy steps to do one, two, three, and everything's going to be pie. It ain't happening. And don't come to us if you're looking for three easy little pie steps. But come to us if you want us to join with you in administering the truth about God himself and about who he is and what he'll do and who he is in you and who you are in him. Amen? Who he is. Who is this God? Hmm. Who is he who lives in me? Be enamored with, be filled up, be preoccupied, be overcome with this thought primarily. Who is this God in me? Who is he? Manifest yourself more clearly, more consistently because of my flesh. Fill me with greater and greater knowledge and experience of who you are. Because the more I know who God is in me, the more I will stand, understand who I am in Christ. So if you want to know who you are in Christ, start with who God is in you. Amen? And then when you start to look at who you are in Christ, because the two are important, but the primary one is who God is in me. So let us live our lives not as those who are unfaithful to this God, but faithful to proclaim him in all aspects. How do I get into this spirit of, sword of the Spirit? I don't think so. Any questions, any comments at all, anything you want to ask about what we've just been talking about? Can we leave here today? And I want an answer. Can we leave here today purposefully, decisionally, regularly putting our hope in Christ? Can we do it? So that's not the question, is it? What is the real question? Say it again. Will we? The devil is against it, 
The flesh is against it. Jesus enters this garden. Believe me, his flesh is against this. The devil is against it. The world system is against it. The entire creation is against it. And you have one man, one man standing absolutely and completely alone in this battle. One man standing absolutely and completely alone in this battle. Other than, remember, in Luke, the angel coming to minister. One man. And this one man takes on the entirety of of the human race and condition and the corruption of all the cosmos. Everything is absolutely dependent upon what issue. Romans 5, 1, 5, what is it? The obedience of this one man's faith. Correct? Will he obey or not obey? Cliff, did you have a question? yesterday at the prayer seminar and where do you think God might be leading uh, Lakeview Christian Center well I think God is leading Lakeview Christian Center in the area of prayer where God has always been leading Lakeview Christian Center in the area of prayer and that is what to not just be people who pray but to be people who are infused by and taken up in this one who is the object of our prayer so that all of my life is lived in worshipful, humble, adoration, submission, petition, praise, and worship. So he's certainly leading us to be a people who will be actively, more purposefully, and consistently deciding to pray and deciding that God is worth the time. Amen. God is worth the time. There's so much to talk about prayer, and I'm not going to do a whole lot about that in the next, not next week now, but the week after next. I'm already off a week. When we get to prayer, which is verse 18, Ephesians, Ephesians six eighteen, with all prayer, remember? But we'll make a couple of comments then. But I'll say this. All the pieces of armor that have been listed in the first, the six pieces, from verses 14 to 17, there's six pieces in those verses. All of them are absolutely dependent upon the necessity and the centrality of prayer, not only to be put on, but to be kept on, and to be function in moral correspondence to the armor itself, to walk in cooperation with the armor. So prayer would be, if you would, the bedrock. Prayer is the receiving of all that God is, and then the submitting to all that God is, and then the walking in all that God is through the various activities and ways that we pray. And you remember we talked about several of those. And by the way, for those of you who came yesterday, thank you so much. And Keith did not mention this because he could not, and he didn't make a comment, and certainly he could not. But I want to encourage you in this. Certainly when we pray, 
there have to be aspects of prayer that, that are at least present generally so, maybe not in every time you pray. But one of the areas where we really are weak in prayer as a people, I think, because I know how I am, and I know I'm unique, but I don't think I'm that unique, is this. In prayer, we believe we have to do the talking mostly. And in prayer, God should be doing the most of the talking. And we do the listening and the responding. So let me encourage you in this way. When you pray, maybe not every single time, but make room in your prayer time for just listening to God and allowing him by the Spirit to take your soul, if you would, into the heavenlies with Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Take your soul and let it soar by the Spirit into the heavenlies where he is seated. And let him fill your heart and mind with revelation, communion, experience of who this God is. Because that's, I think, one of the weakest areas of our relationship. What amazes me more and more every day, and I have to constantly ask, who are you? Who are you? And in prayer, through the various activities of prayer, and especially the time of meditation, God begins in a greater way, certainly through all the the ways that God gives us, but unfortunately we neglect this one. God tells us who he is. Amen? So what is our greatest need? Well, I don't know. Greatest, but what is the great need? Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me. Look to me for your salvation. Yahweh is speaking to the people. Look to me. Amen? Anything else? So next week we'll take up the sword of the Spirit.